I want to tell you about Whetstone Radio Collective, a brand new podcast venture from Whetstone Media. The shows from Whetstone Radio have a sound all their own, with discussions on politics, culture, global gastronomic histories, all centered on human empathy. Whetstone Radio Collective has some incredible shows for you, like Climate Cuisine from Taiwanese-American journalist Clarissa Wei, which looks at the way the climate crisis is fundamentally shaping our relationship with food, or Fruit Love Letters from Chef Jessamine Starr, which is like a valentine to all your favorite fruits. I encourage you to check out some of the programming at Whetstone Radio Collective and continue to discover the immense power that food has on our communal lives. As we've been reporting, a high-stakes summit is underway in Scotland that's being called the last hope to stop catastrophic climate change. The primary goals of COP26 are to secure global net zero by 2050. Now, if we're going to get to zero, we'll take some dramatic measures, including much better ways to capture carbon dioxide. New efforts to pull carbon dioxide out of the air and put it somewhere safe. Regenerative agriculture. That means producing food while reducing the impact on the environment. It's a farming practice that some experts claim can reverse climate change by sequestering atmosphere CO2 in the soil. Driven by climate-conscious consumers, a number of massive corporations, including General Mills and PepsiCo, are vowing to scale regenerative practices across millions of acres of farmland. Danone, Kellogg's, and Unilever also stick their teeth into fostering regenerative agriculture across their supply chains. Ultimately, it may prove vital in getting the private sector to net zero. In October of 2020, Fast Company ran an article with the headline, Annie's Mac and Cheese Has Always Saved Mealtime, Now It's Saving the Planet. The article was about how Annie's, a subsidiary of General Mills, was going beyond organic and leading the packaged food industry toward regenerative agriculture, with pictures on the box of the farmers who had produced the ingredients with regenerative methods. In this episode, I bring together two of our frequent guests on this podcast, Dr. Urvashi Rangan and Patty Lavera, to help explain regenerative agriculture, its connection to climate, and why a boxed mac and cheese brand is committing itself to a set of agricultural practices and wanting to tell its customers all about it. We also get into whether or not we can trust green commitments like that from big food companies and what we can look for as consumers to know whether a company's claims can be backed up. I'm Jerusha Klemperer, and this is What You're Eating, a project of foodprint.org. We aim to help you understand how your food gets to your plate and to see the full impact of the food system on animals, planet, and people. We uncover the problems with the industrial food system and offer examples of more sustainable practices, as well as practical advice for how you can help support a better system through the food that you buy and the system changes you push for. I'm Ravashi Rankin. I am chief scientist at Grace Communications Foundation. I've also been the co-chair for Funders for Regenerative Agriculture that we started about two years ago. And I'm Patty Lavera. I am a consultant on different food policy issues, including a lot of time in different arenas on um, animal agriculture and also a lot of time, and Ravashi and I go way back on this, on standards and labels and how you communicate what happens in producing food and how you convey that to consumers. I sat them down together to hear their thoughts on regenerative boxed mac and cheese. But first I asked them to dig even deeper into what regenerative agriculture is, since for the average shopper of mac and cheese or anything else, it isn't necessarily common knowledge. I think 
at the very top level as a consumer, it is getting access to food that is produced really well without a lot of chemical inputs, without a lot of synthetics or potential toxins, um, without production practices that can be harmful to the environment um, and strip the environment of its ability to sequester carbon in the soil to maintain fertility in the soil, which is part of how we get nutrients back into our food. So it comes with a consciousness of all those things. And that is ideologically what Regenerative is trying to get to, where you can farm and produce food in a way that is not stripping nutrients from the ground. It is not stripping the soil of its ability to uh, take in nutrients, to give up nutrients to plants, to sequester carbon. It ultimately regenerates the system over time so that you can keep on growing things and have that soil health that is the basis for the plant health, that is the basis for the animal health, that is the basis for our health, all in place. Practically speaking, it gets a little trickier to talk about how we can guarantee that. Um, And it's probably also worth mentioning that regenerative isn't something new. It's about people who farmed land that really understood the land and where they were regionally, because obviously it's not all the same. Um, Regions in this country differ so much. So it makes a huge difference where you are and then how you farm. Your problems are going to be different. Your soils are going to be different. But the commonality among them all are these bigger principles about life in the soil, health in the soil, microbiology in the soil, and fertility in the soil. And ideally, you'd have integrated crop livestock systems where you'd have lots of different kinds of crops, lots of different kinds of animals. Those are the systems that have been shown to put the most biology back into the land and the fastest. Those are the systems that have been shown to rebuild topsoil faster than any other way that can then sequester carbon into the ground. And with soil being the number two largest sink of carbon, it's central to our current conversation. And while we're taping this podcast, the climate discussions are going on in Glasgow, and nobody's really talking about this potential of agriculture to put more into the ground to help us get carbon dioxide out of the air and back into the carbon-nitrogen cycling. Regenerative is a, it literally is a way of thinking that we'll talk about how there's different folks defining it differently and like we don't have a legal standard, but like it is a different mindset. And it is a break from, I think, kind of the dominant thinking in conventional ag at this point, which is like, oh, got a problem? Here's the thing we'll sell you to fix that problem. Oh, your soils are depleted because you have basically just like mined them for whatever nutrition the plant needed over the years. Well, then here's your synthetic fertilizer. Got a pest problem because you plant one crop year after year and suddenly bugs have discovered this is a great place to eat that crop because it's a candy store for them because you only grow the one thing. Here's your synthetic you know, fill in the the blanks, herbicides to kill weeds, insecticides to kill insects, you know, whatever, whatever. We'll even put it in the plant for you with, with genetic engineering. It'll grow with the pesticide inside, you know, conventional, I mean, this is obviously a simplification, but conventional ag 
does not see the farm as a source of the solution of the problems. It sees the farm as like a platform to apply inputs, to get a thing to happen, to grow the thing they want to grow. Regenerative, and I don't think anybody would say they've completely closed the loop, but it's an attempt to kind of close the loop so that farm is much more self-sustaining. And it's lots and lots and lots of the thinking is about what am I building so that next year my soil is in better shape to take care of me and I might plant crops that I never sell because those crops are to put something back in the soil. Oh, there's a lot more alive in soil than we give it credit for. And when it's, you know, it spends all winter out getting snowed on or blown away or whatever, that's not great. So on regenerative farms, you're going to see a lot more kind of continuous cover. That's not true in every part of the country, but in a lot of parts of the country. Hopefully you're going to see a lot more livestock on the land, not as the industrial cog that eats the industrial corn that gets grown somewhere else, but like as part of a cycle because, you know, their feet on the land and their poop on the land and the right amounts is part of a cycle that like builds an ecosystem. And you're going to see a lot more thinking about like, what is my long range plan to build the characteristic I need in the future as opposed to like, what can I buy as an input that's like a quick fix? I think those are kind of like the goals and that's why it's so different than kind of like the corn, soy, monoculture, you got a problem, we'll sell you a chemical solution, which is our dominant system. You can also sort of boil it down to a chemical-based system or a biological-based system. We put millions and millions of pounds of herbicides onto the land that those are these chemical approaches to legitimate problems in in farming, but ones that chemistry has frankly been a bit of a race to the bottom. So your pesticide will eventually become obsolete because those pests we've learned, and that's nature, will learn how to resist them over time. Weeds do the same thing. They also naturally will start to resist. And if you put more and more on it, it actually will resist it faster. And now we have super weeds and other things that are causing stronger and different pesticides and herbicides to be developed. So this is the chemical treadmill we've been on. What we've learned, especially and confirmed sort of microbiologically in the last few years, is that there is this, frankly, it's a universe. It's like space, but it's in the ground. It's in the soil, and it's microorganisms, and it's fungi, and there's actually funguses that go to, or fungi that go to rocks and will mine the minerals and bring them back to the plant roots for them to take it up. But if you hose that soil in chemical inputs, you lose much of that biology that is frankly required in order for us to keep carbon and nitrogen cycling properly to keep nutrients and fertility in the ground. So again, regenerative uses nature and works with nature to get pest control. It works with nature to get weed control. It works with nature to steward fertility. And that's why animals are so important on the land because they are the natural sources of fertility. And unlike synthetic fertilizers, their fertilizer comes with all this biology that the soil actually wants and it needs. And that's been something where we're recognizing more and more now in the science, but it is completely far afield from where we are in agriculture 
In fact, we're going the opposite direction. We're losing fertility. We're losing the ability of our soil to even grow our food. We can't really see it beyond 100 years at this point in this country. It's getting harder and harder to see how we will do that. And that's because we're headed toward a Dust Bowl-like situation with how we've treated the soil and what chemicals have actually done to it. I think for most people, when they think of the opposite of chemical agriculture, they think of organic. And that's what's in their minds and where there's some literacy. How do organic and regenerative relate to each other? I mean, I could start, or if you can pile on. Um, so I work I work with organic farmers as one of my many jobs. And there are folks who are certified organic who I believe would meet anybody's standard of regenerative who have like figured it out. And if you talk about all the principles we've been talking about, about like you look at your farm as, as closed of a loop as possible and, you know, we're thinking about seven years of crop rotations because the third year does this important thing for the fourth year. And I could absolutely show you certified organic farms who do that, but unfortunately I could also show you certified organic farms that don't. So this is the struggle we have. I can't say it's not because I don't want to throw that first category of like really great organic farmers who are meeting, well, we always talk about the principles of organic production, like getting away from the law. And we have a, you know, we have a set of legal standards about what you have to do to get the organic label. But before we had that, you know, that happened 30 years ago. Before we had that, um, there were folks doing this and like developing the techniques and sharing information. And they really kind of, as a community, came up with these principles. The principles of organic agriculture line up pretty nicely with what we're shooting for to say it's regenerative. We have struggled, I would say, as organic got popular, as we entered the marketplace and it became a marketing label. When there's money on the table, things change. And I think organic is a real life lesson there about the pressure that can happen when you, one, define it. You know, what is a great farm and it's the right number of cows on a patch of of land in Vermont doesn't make any damn sense in New Mexico. So it's hard to write standards that work for everybody. It's hard to enforce standards in capitalism when there's money to be made. I mean, there's just challenges when you kind of go from principles to standards, to a label, to enforcement. And I think organic is actually a super useful case study of that. It's important to understand what it isn't, but it actually is something. And the standards behind it are actually pretty um, progressive. Even 30 years after we passed the Organic Food Production Act, it is the only system that bans the use of synthetic fertilizers. When you think of synthetic fertilizers, maybe it doesn't seem very flashy or sexy or neato, but it's a humongous industry. It is um, a huge fossil fuel-based industry. And in fact, it's one of the largest contributors of greenhouse gases out there. So even the poorest organic farm system is not using synthetic fertilizers. It isn't fully regenerative, but it is doing something significant, actually, when it comes down to it. Same thing with industrial pesticides. You may not use the bulk of industrial pesticides out there. There are a few that are approved um, that are synthetic, but for the most part, you cannot use those. So that is also significant, especially given the millions and millions of pounds of it that go into the environment that are considered probable or likely or known carcinogens. That said, 
you know, I couldn't agree more with Patty that there is a spectrum of organic folks who are just meeting that standard and those who go all the way to providing regenerative systems, cultivating soil. And really where the rubber meets the road are increasing their soil health. And you can know that by some looking and physical measurements, but there is even more to know when you start to look at the biology of your actual soil and what is going on. And there are some really interesting researchers out there who are looking at microbial density, microbial diversity, um, and really able to get to now the more microscopic metrics of soil health. People think today we just talk about carbon credits in soil, and that's the only metric of good soil or good farming practices. It's a sad reductionist uh, reductionism of what we really should be considering when there is such a broad spectrum of health attributes at that base level that should be considered. You also can't get very far with monoculture. And because some organic systems do allow monoculture, you are limited in the diversity you're going to be putting onto that land, which means you can only steward that soil so much and will not be able to optimize because you only have a monoculture system. So, you know, it's important for people to think if you, one, if you care about sustainability at all, we all should care about organic and we should be supporting the farmers that are truly doing a good job. And I would just suggest to everybody, you look locally first and support those that are in your own local economies. And that's the other sort of massive difference in approach is when people say you can't scale regenerative, I say, well, it depends on what you think scale is. I mean, if scale is just making one farm really huge, probably not. But if you're talking about employing many more farmers uh, to sort of midsize operations or small scale, then you're talking about more people in the system, more diversity, and a better ability to actually grow things in a truly sort of meaningful and regenerative way. This brings us to the question of scale, and it's where boxed mac and cheese comes in. Annie's is owned by General Mills, which has publicly committed to advancing regenerative agriculture on 1 million acres of farmland by 2030, starting with pilot programs in North Dakota, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, Kansas, and Michigan. Danone, an international company that produces things like Danon yogurt and owns Stonyfield Organic, was an early proponent of regenerative in the corporate field, as part of its commitment to becoming carbon neutral by 2050. Even PepsiCo announced in April 2021 its goal to spread regenerative farming practices across 7 million acres. So I asked Patty and Irvashi what they thought about these companies jumping into the fray and whether or not we could trust that what they were doing was truly regenerative agriculture. Okay, so which personality do you want me to use to answer this? So uh, you can go glass half full and which is that the bar right now is pretty freaking low for what is happening, right? So does this kind of push um, for, you know, big company X, Y, or Z to actually do something that moves the, moves the needle and they're being a little kinder to their soil, you know, a, a, 
there's a, the glass half full is like the bar that the baseline is so bad any improvement is improvement and you know even a, like very incremental improvement on a lot of acres does that add up to something um that's the glass half full i think the glass half empty is like on whose terms who is is it real what they're doing is it actually moving the needle or is it just like a paper-based exercise where they were like we think in a model that sequesters more carbon but we won't measure it we can't measure it we don't want to measure it whose decision making is that is it is what they're doing significant are they really doing it is anyone checking and then is it enough and i think in the climate crisis moment we're finally talking about it probably isn't enough like fiddling around the edges of chemical agriculture for lack of a better term is probably not the pace we need to be on like we need to be having conversations about like what are we doing with nitrogen fertilizer like it is a climate bomb right like why is that the basis of our system does company x y or z's commitment get them off that model in any usable time frame right but having said that doing nothing because we're paralyzed for five years is that good i don't know because the current the status quo is not good so it's really like which end you want to approach it from i usually approach it from like it's not fast enough it's not big enough because that's just like where i live but um and also they're all what what is actually very very true is like we are doing this in a void of 50 years of being unwilling to regulate agriculture in any meaningful way so like as we're doing this Glasgow is happening. The Secretary of Agriculture is there and he is rolling out plans left, right and center where we openly talk about, well, we wouldn't ever regulate agriculture and tell them they can't do something. So instead, here's a long menu of various acronyms about ways we're going to pay big conventional agriculture to maybe do something that's slightly less bad. I mean, that's like the philosophy at this point in a moment where we're in a crisis and we should be re-examining all of these systems. And it's just like not even on the table that we would say you can't do that in agriculture. It's not even in our political repertoire to think about. And so then you end up with, well, companies are gonna do it. What's their pledge? Is it real? What does it mean? Are they are they drawing the same box around how they can't count emissions? Or did they like conveniently draw the box in such a narrow way, they left out fertilizer, right? <laughs> like, and, you know, I mean, there's we could go on and on about this. I will say I'm going to leave the company names out so you don't get sued. But, like, there is a very large organic operator in one region of the country that is owned by a multinational, perhaps based in France, dairy company, you know, that's got just very glowing and really snazzy graphics like Climate Pledge. And... They just dropped a bunch of organic farms in a part of the country because it was too painful to go pick up their milk because they were small. So, like, do I love that outcome, that that's part of your carbon accounting, that you're going to, like, make your farms bigger? You can make these numbers work any different ways, and there could be so many, um, just so many unintended consequences of that, and we have no arena to discuss this. We have no common metrics to use you're supposed to figure this out in the grocery store on your own, right? Because it's being done in the marketplace and that makes me bonkers. Yeah, I I love your fiddling around the edges of chemical ag, Patty. It's just, that's it. That's it. That's what a lot of these bigger, bigger companies are doing. They're sort of, you know, tweaking a few things and then they want to call it regenerative because the baseline is so low. Uh, a company that wants to voluntarily step up and do something 
is not to be shamed. You know, I think it's good. And uh, because so many of these companies who are trying to do this are so big, it's very hard to move big things in big steps. And ultimately, big things often move very incrementally. When you multiply that, you know, the sort of scale times the teeny movement, you still net out with something that may be somewhat effective. Um, But to Patty's point, the crises we're in right now are so great that these little tweakings of movements are, are not going to get us to where we need to go in the amount of time to prevent a lot of harmful things from happening. And it's a bit disingenuous for companies to check the regenerative box when they are not doing the full regenerative scale of things. And I think transparency is also at play here so that companies actually need to just tell you what they're doing. So if a company is going to, say, reduce the amount of pesticides it's going to use then say that and if we're going to grow you know huge tracts of grain with less pesticide then that's a good thing can you get those huge scales to a regenerative line that's a different question I wish these companies would not rush this to a marketing point They should be at a time where they're looking inward and doing some real true cost, true value accounting of what their practices are doing that are harmful in several different areas, environment, economic, um, health. You know, there's lots of buckets that they should be considering. And then they need to look about the value of what they're doing and the value of doing something different. And where you get mitigation of some of those risks. At the end of the day, regenerative ag will really net out as the right thing to do. But until we actually value those things, uh, it never quite makes those balance sheets. Ultimately, though, I will say that organic, for all its foibles, is still an amazing example of an agricultural system that is growing and that consumers will pay more for. It it only succeeded because consumers wanted it. It didn't succeed because USDA wanted to promote it. Good God. I remember remember when they got it, Patty, they did the announcement at a McDonald's or they no, they did it at a Whole Foods, but they came with their McDonald's breakfast and they did not want this program. USDA's job was to market agriculture, so organic in many ways was anathema to that. It was like they didn't want to promote this alternative system, but they were given that regulatory authority, and organic didn't succeed because of the USDA. Organic succeeded because consumers had to learn what it was, which was a several-year process, and recognize the value and then be willing to pay more for it. And it's pretty amazing it happened. It grew something like 20% a year for decades. It was the only growing segment of agriculture. So there's the hope, you know. People on the whole, I think, want a better system. And it shouldn't just be the people who pay more who are able to get it. And that comes down to regulations and how we bring the bottom up so that everyone actually has access to food that is produced well and is healthy for them 
healthy for the environment, healthy for the animals, and allows our kids and their kids and their kids to continue to grow food. For some regenerative agriculture advocates or practitioners, carefully managed grazing of animals is an integral part of a regenerative system. But there are some sustainability advocates who express skepticism that animals, especially cows, can really be included in a sustainable food system. I asked Patty and Irvashi, who see potential in a lot of different regenerative systems, but especially those with livestock involved, why it's such an important piece. The reason why crops and livestock do best together is because they provide a biological diversity for one another that actually promotes the health of each component. And that also then promotes the health of the soil. So you've got soil, you have plants on top of that, you have animals and insects, the whole ecology of the system and the people. When you take animals out of it, you take an important source of fertility and nutrients out of the system. And and what, what do we do with that right now? 99% of our systems take the livestock manure that is really nature's nutrition for itself. And it collects it all in these big manure pools or big manure piles that are festering pathogens and that come from animals that have been treated with antibiotics every day because they've been confined and they're not very healthy. And these drugs are in the manure as well. And the amount of resistant pathogens that are being created, it's literally a public health hazard. That's what's going on with most of the livestock systems that are sort of industrial managed today. You could literally stop that entire, that entire system of toxicity by putting animals directly on the land, by letting them poop and pee on the land where their manure, as long as there aren't massive numbers of them will be taken up by the environment naturally and where the nutrients can be composted into the soil and put back into the plants that are growing in that soil and without any collection of manure that would therefore be a public health hazard. That is just one example of the differences in livestock systems where you take something that should be a natural fertility aid and has been taken and become a public health hazard. It's an air hazard. It's a land hazard. It's a water hazard. And then you also come with the advantage of not using synthetic fertilizers, the fossil fuel-based, the chemical-based fertilizers. So you kind of, it's sort of a win-win-win in that situation when you have them all together on the land in a system that is literally promoting health from the ground up. I work with groups who fight industrialized livestock production, right, who are fighting the factory farm model. And there are proposals and bills about like, you know, and, and these are, we are far from passing them, right? But there are bills to be like, we stop building new ones, change this, the, you know, the policies for how we um, support crop production like corn and soy because a huge percentage of that corn and soy is feeding these factory farmed animals like we have to do that level of intervention to change the system we have but and then you have this conversation and people were like well if you just had all those animals out on pasture wouldn't that wreck the environment like we are talking about different scales of production right so when you're talking about um 
you know, when, you know, we're talking about poop, right? So if you talk about poop that is in a factory farm system, it is a pollutant because of the amount of it in one place and the other chemicals and inputs that are part of that system. And then people are like, and you suddenly like poop when it's on a pasture? And I'm like, yeah, because we're talking about different orders of magnitude in the amount. So we're not talking about taking the nine, you know, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, the nine billion chickens that we kill every year in this country and turning them loose on the countryside, we are, we have to be honest, probably talking about less chickens in a system. So it's in balance where you're growing them, but in balance and done properly, it's like a revolutionary concept that gets you a much more closed loop because there is a role for animals in, in a more holistic, like far, farm as ecosystem type approach, but it's going to be less animals. And then everyone freaks out, oh, you know, you're going to change our diets like we export a lot of this so we need to help other countries make the same decision and then yeah we probably have to have a conversation about how much meat we eat but like that none of that like all of that is hard but one we have to do it if we're going to like have this climate conversation and two none of that negates the fact that like you can raise animals well on the land and we should be building a system around how to do that not just saying oh we have a lot of animals where are we going to raise them like we're you know we're not taking the current system and just turning it loose and pretending that's going to work we're talking about a different system that is like based on the carrying capacity of the land yeah and the only thing i'd love to add to that is just that there are places that we can farm to grow food and and crops there are also some lands that are grasslands and grasslands make up the second largest soil area next to forests and they have the second largest potential to sequester carbon the way we've let our industrial animals sort of graze off their first you know sort of first half of life before they go into confinement and fattening up is just through unmanaged grazing essentially and what that's led to is a complete destruction and degradation of our grasslands and the ability of our grasslands to maintain the grasses to maintain the soil uh, water and fertility and that is what we've degraded I think about 40 percent or more of our of our national grasslands through that but again regenerative livestock production does offer some really interesting ways of regrading that grassland um, especially with animals that range and that blows people's minds when you talk about that concept and then people get mad like oh you're gonna have cows running through the national forest and it's like no we're no we're not if we don't allow that and we have smart regulations we don't have to have cows rampaging through the national forest like we can decide where and how we raise animals and do it in a way that is like good for that place right and it you know it's also worth saying that the the peoples who lived on this land long before we all got here the white the white folks were managing these lands with animals um for thousands and thousands of years and doing it sustainably you know and we came and really um you know took up all the fertile land and just extracted it for all it was worth and sort of squoze the life out of it and this is where we are now and often when I hear people say well regenerative I you know you can't get there that just seems impossible it's too hard to do 
the consequences of not going regenerative are probably going to be much harder. And so, you know, we have the opportunity and nature gives us this opportunity to actually reverse things. I, I find that as a scientist sort of mind boggling. We can reverse the damage if we really want to do it. Um, and we can bring back degraded lands again and make them alive. You can literally change things around 180 degrees. You know, you mentioned, I wish these companies would just say what they're actually doing and not jump to marketing like, we're regenerative. Um, it seems like the answer is they're doing it because they can. And so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about this sort of nebulous place that this word and this not label, but claim lives right now. Yeah, I mean, legally, at this point, there's nothing to point to, you know, in federal law to say regenerative means this, this, or this. Um, so you're not breaking any law I know about if you market your stuff that way. Then, and this is not the only claim we see on labels where that is the case. We have, you've all heard me rant about natural labels, right? I mean, there's a lot, this is sad, but true about our food marketing system is you can say a lot of stuff um, and there's not a ton of rules about it. Organic is one of the exceptions, like the government regulates that word and I have my thoughts about making the regulations better, but it's regulated and there's a set of standards and you can look it up and, you know, have some confidence that that happened. Um, I don't think that that is currently the case with regenerative when it comes to the government. We're in this situation a lot as consumers trying to navigate this. And I think it's probably going to get worse before it gets better because they are clearly seeing the marketing potential of this word. Yeah. It's such a wild west out there in terms of what companies can say and how they want to say it and how they want to use it. So what should companies do? You know, what 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 should the companies who are currently claiming they're regenerative do? They ought to go get some kind of independent certification for what they are doing and claiming to do and do the due diligence that they sh should do like any organic producer would have to do and do the, the paperwork, the audits in order to get that certification because that tells consumers something and there's some accountability behind that. Does fraud go on? It sometimes does. Um, can there be bad certifications, like Patty was saying, that don't have a lot of standards? There can be. So you do have to do your homework. Here are a couple that are trying to go that extra mile that are doing a pretty good job of it. And you don't see them very often because it takes a lot to get their certification. But Regenerative Organic Certified, Rock for short, is one label that is requiring organic certified at the base of it. So you can't even get in and apply for it unless you are first and foremost certified as organic. Once you're there, though, this program offers several additional standards in the social, justice, welfare, farm workers category. It also offers more in the animal welfare standards that organics, you know, don't really get into in a very either deep level or in the case of social standards, not at all. And this is an attempt by its Rodale Patagonia um and uh, Bronner's that started this label, but it is a separate entity now called Regenerative Organic Certified. But the interesting part of it is that it won't just be for food, it'll be for textiles and ingredients that go into personal care products. 
like organic is now, but it'll, again, add add more. It'll add more value into different spaces. So that's a label, I think, to look for going forward. There's also, I believe, um, a Greener World Regenerative certification label that these also, um, in addition to organic or even standalone, are offering a sort of significant amount of value to the products that are being produced. That label is from a greener world, which is responsible for the very rigorous animal welfare approved label. They're currently piloting a regenerative label as well. Until we have widespread certifications, it sounds like we have to wade through broad-based claims from large companies, sometimes only on their websites or in press releases, and sometimes right there on the back of their mac and cheese boxes, promising to be part of the climate solution we so desperately need. Most of the decisions that we make policy-wise in ag do have inadvertent consequences or advertent consequences, but Regen is a way to try to stop one-offing everything and get to the heart of the matter in a meaningful way that is lasting and will allow us to grow food for the next several hundred years. What You're Eating is produced by Nathan Dalton and me, your host, Jerusha Klepper. The podcast is part of foodprint.org, which is a project of the Grace Communications Foundation. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Vashi Rangan and Patty Lavera. You can find us at www.foodprint.org, where we have this podcast as well as articles, reports, a food label guide, and more. And if you've been enjoying the show, we hope you'll leave us a review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts.